Well, welcome everybody to the Teaching That Counts podcast. Once again, I'm Abel Maestas, a instructional coach here in Ceres Unified School District. So I'm joined here by four amazing teachers. Once again, we are looking at the book, Building Thinking Classrooms by Peter Lillidal. We are finally finished. We're at chapters 14 and 15, so we're, we're going to talk about this and wrap it up and uh, probably talk about what's, what's next. So let's, uh, well, actually, let's go and introduce everybody here. So we'll start. Grant? I am Grant McCormick, and I teach Integrated Math 1 at Central Valley High School. I'm Sarah Mucha, and I teach Accelerated Math 2 at Central Valley High School. I'm Elvis Liliado. I teach Integrated Math 1 and Computer Science at Ceres High School. Diana Andrade. I teach Math 1 and Math 2 at Argus High School here in Ceres. Awesome. Well, thank you again for joining me today and wrapping up our long book study. I think we started this, wow, maybe in October, November, somewhere around there. And little by little, we've been adding things into our classrooms, uh, adding in some of these chapters. And then we get to chapter 15 and he says, hey, you don't have to add these and do it this way. (laughs) Thanks for telling us the beginning. So uh, that was one of the ahas I had when I was reading chapter 15. But let's go and talk about chapter 14. We finished this off, the last practice with grading. And this is something we've been talking a lot about in this district, about grading for equity, grading for growth. How are are we um, using equitable grading practices? And this aligns, I think this chapter really aligned with that. He gave a little bit of a different perspective. It sounds a lot like, I mean, I think he even called it standards-based grading, which is, is what it is. But he gave some tools on on how to do it. And I guess I think just to let you know, the most eye-opening thing for me was turning our paradigm to evidence-based grading, where evidence doesn't necessarily have to come in the form of a test or a quiz, and that it could even come from observation conversation and even when students are collaborating in groups as part of that grading that was i guess a bit refreshing but an aha for me at well but i also thought gosh how how does this look like i really would want to see this in action because this was a long chapter there's a lot to go through and i just felt that it would be helpful kind to kind of see how a teacher goes throughout the day marking up the little uh, tools and 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 gathers that evidence on a day-to-day basis. So, I mean, I, I love the idea of it. I like the tools. I just think this might be one of the trickier ones to apply. Um, what do you guys think? That, that Those were my first impressions. I think that it was a little overwhelming. I mean, I appreciated that in this chapter, they're using the same instruments that they used in the previous chapter. I just, I guess I just don't know the logistics of it. So, I have basically a rubric in front of me with basic, intermediate, and advanced, and I'm marking things based on what I'm seeing in the classroom or conversations I'm having, but does that mean I'm walking around my classroom with 30 to 32 (laughs) little slips of, like, rubrics for every single student? I just don't know how to streamline it because I do want to – I think it said you only need two – Consecutive. Yeah, two consecutive, like, good marks to then say, like, okay, this student has it. But I'm like, I I just got overwhelmed with the amount 
of like papers that I may have to be trailing the room with as well as trying to facilitate. So that was hard. Yeah. Yeah. I wish if he listens to contact me <laughs> on, on Twitter and give me an answer to that. Cause that was something that I was like, do you keep it in a, I don't know. I just don't know how to make that quicker. But I do, I do think that like the um, data gathering system, it does show like the whole student. We're we're just giving paper tests for the most part, and so that's not seeing the whole student. I feel like I have, for instance, like students that have you know um, alternate test setting and and things like that, and. I feel like if I had a conversation with that student to do their test orally, then that student probably would test better. But then it's like, how do I, how do I make time to do that for that student? So I guess that goes back to this point of having those observations at the vertical whiteboards and having, making it a point to go to that student and have those conversations. It's just the recording part that seems daunting for me. Yeah, I wanted to add to that with the whole streamline. As I was reading the chapter, and I felt overwhelmed, like, I, I want to stop reading this because I don't think I can do this. I tell myself, like, <laughs> there's way too much work here. But I do like the idea of using data for grading. I, I, I mean, we need to implement it. We have to find a streamline for that. And something that kind of, like, stood out for me was, looking through it, was it in this chapter, The Myth About Grading? Yeah, like, objectivity is a myth. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Oh yeah, how you grade? You grade um, if you grade first period, you might grade it harsher than fifth period. And yeah. then I was like, oh no, I'm taking home a bunch of tests. Like this is gonna happen. So I'm like, maybe I should start with fifth period this time, and like you know, mix it up, because I do feel like I get into a flow of grading after first period, and then it's like I don't know if I'm being more lenient or more harsh as I go on. I thought that was really like. Well, I, I get tired, so I start being a lot lenient. And I'm like, wait, how does this student get an A? <laughs> how does this student pass my classes? <laughs> like, as I go back, it's like, and I do grade it again, it's like, this student should have not passed my test. And then I had to double grade my, my test in a sense to that. Um, but yeah, that's what I wanted to mention. And on that, in that vein, it says that that the discrepancies in how you grade is because of how much time we are spending do, grading summative assessments or things like that. Mm -hmm. And there's all those frequently asked questions of um, how much time this takes. And uh, the most eye-opening thing for me was when it mentions, well, maybe you don't grade that question for that kid on that test if you already have that evidence that that kid has got it. And thinking of, oh, well, if I don't have to grade all of the questions for all of my kids, grading could actually, that test could actually take a whole lot less time. And then I'm not worried about, you know, oh, I didn't finish on Friday and I don't get back to grading until Monday and having that discrepancy. I thought of that too. I was like, wow, imagine grading a test where one student does two problems and then the other student maybe does three and another one does two. I, it's just, It'd be like an exit ticket. It would be so quick. Right, yeah. But how do the students know which problems they need to do? Well, he does say that if you organize it based on levels, it'll be a lot easier for you. So you can have pages where it's like this level one, and if students can complete that, you know that they can complete that task, level two and level three. And that's what I was thinking. Then my next assessment is going to be based on levels where it's basic definitions of what a student, or a C student should be able to do, and then I can see what a B student should be able to do. 
and then A student. And I would challenge that through like maybe three problems on level, three or four problems on level one, two problems on level two, and then another one or two problems on level three. A lot more difficult. And that's the I'm thinking of pre-minute assessment. I And I think that our proficiency scales might guide that, might help that because we can see a two of what is a two or a three. I think in the previous chapter you talked about too, when you're making a test, think about how many of these do I need or and how many levels of those do I need? So you can level out the exam. And he does say, right, uh, if, a, if a student can do a five, what, what he calls, a, do he call level five? An advanced, right? If a student can do an advanced problem. Backwards compatible. It's backwards mm -hmm. compatible. Mm -hmm. So it, it just automatically covers the previous things. And I think that when we create a test or we're looking at a test from a curriculum, we really have to keep in mind, can the student, if this is my advanced problem, can a student do this problem without being able to do some of the basic intermediate stuff? If the answer is yes, then it's not an advanced problem, right? They have to be able to do some of the other things before they can do that. And then it becomes an advanced problem. So that way you can then, yeah, they hit the advanced. They weren't able to hit the basic and intermediate, you know, in the exit tickets. But here we are now. They did this one advanced problem. Boom, done. Like, I don't even have to do much work uh, in terms of the grading. So I, I thought that was an, a benefit. I could see that, like, reducing the amount of work. Definitely. Once you get over the idea of how am I going to keep track of 150 students' <laughs> right. instruments, <laughs> right? Yeah, and uh, how many am I having on my clipboard as I'm walking around the classroom on that day and recording all that evidence, while also trying to provide hints and extensions and manage flow? Uh, you know, that's going to have to come after shoring up some of the other practices, I think, for me. But I am looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. I know Peter said that he has a, a system, and on page 260. He has his check marks for everything. And his uh, six symbols that he uses for checking students' understanding. It's like, I don't know if I can keep track of all six symbols at once while I'm grading all these kids at once. So I, I appreciate the suggestion, but when there's 32, 35 students, it does become overwhelming. It's like, why do we do that? Well, I wonder if it's like the previous chapter where you just, maybe you're only grading three groups or three students, you know? So... But I think also, like, yeah, those are suggestions for marks, but you could come up with your own marks, maybe. Yeah, you could. And, you know, there are, actually, there are only six. I think after a while, it becomes easy. Uh, I would say it would it's going to take some time for the teacher and student to get used to that. Yeah, when I, I was going through this, and I don't have 30-some students in my class, so for me, I think... It's going to be a good, you know, uh, testing point. But uh, how I saw it is I do use my roster, and then I will make marks for those students, whether it, and I have my own little thing, but I could easily adapt it to whatever we're doing that day. So maybe it is a group task, and I could just mark on the bottom, you know, group task. So I don't have 30 pieces of paper maybe you just have your roster and you write down this is what we did and then you can give your own little you know yes or no or whatever it is you want to use for your mark so that's kind of how I was thinking instead of taking 35 one for each kid maybe just use your roster for that that's a good idea yeah and, and it might be like in a single lesson or day there are really only two things you're looking at 
Correct. Right? You might only have a basic and an intermediate task. Right. Um, or you might only have maybe the intermediate is the task and then the basic is an exit ticket and that's all you're looking at that day. Yeah. And, um, and I think as, so. as we all know, as professionals in our classrooms, like you know the students who have it. And you know the students who are right there but maybe just need a little hint. You know, so I think that comes quickly. And then on the flip side, you also know the students who you need to support a little bit more. So I think in the overall scheme of things, I think it would go a little bit quicker than what, you know, as we were reading this, we're like, oh my God, you know, because I was the same <laughs> yeah. way. All those pieces of paper, I can't imagine those poor comprehensive high school teachers doing this. But I definitely did like the idea of, um, basing your questions on the level and because I know I do have like one of his questions is do you know can you think of some students who would only giving the first page of the test could be beneficial absolutely I have so many students that just get that anxiety or you know and, and we all do but um, so I definitely think that would be a good thing like, okay, here, I just need you to do this. And then if they do complete that in a timely fashion, then, you know, then you can go on to the next page of the next level. So I thought that was really good. That's something I definitely want to do next year, next fall. And then I also like the collaborative testing. So to me, it's like we're doing everything in groups, right? And they're working together all the time. But then here's that test. And now you got to be on your own. Yeah. So I like the idea of maybe letting them look at some problems or collaborate over some problems, maybe the day before or maybe right before, and then go ahead and give them that, that assessment. I don't know. Well, I like and I think that idea. this method helps when we're thinking of, well, what's, is it fair for us to grade in a group, like a group grade? And, you know, Coming into this, I would say, well, not really fair because some kids might do more than other kids would do, right? You would give them a quiz and they collaborate, but clearly one kid is just not collaborating at all and the other two are doing it. Well, this takes into account that, right? That's why we have the little G. The G is they were able to do this in a group. But if, they, if you got a G and then you got an X for the individual thing, that's not enough data, now you're back to the previous level. So that takes into account that equity piece that is inherent with group, uh, group quizzes or assessments. So I really did like that. And it really does bring back, and I like this sentence, I underlined it and highlighted it, both. Grading becomes a byproduct of learning rather than the objective of learning. I feel so often, this is on page 267, I feel so often we get so caught up in the CASP and the test and the grades and that we keep thinking that the objective is for us to, for students to do well on the test. And that makes grades the objective of the learning and we want to get away from that. We want to just to make the byproduct of the learning and the learning is what's most important. I also liked in the FAQs they talked about color coding your um your data. I love color coding. So um, <laughs> you would love that section, yeah, right? So um, whether it was a test or a quiz data versus observational data, so that way you could kind of streamline your um, your like 
I'm going to call it a rubric, but I know it's not. It's an instrument for recording student data. So, you know, you could have check marks and X's for, but if it's green, it's group work. Or if it's purple, it's on the test or exit tickets. And then another color for observations. So it's more visual. So I wanted to add, too, that um, back in Chapter 12, uh, just backtracking a little bit, uh, it says what we choose to evaluate anything in classroom. I had my students actually create a, a rubric for themselves on what I should be grading them. And I asked them a simple question, because this my rubric was going to be based on, was what makes a good learner? And so students knew what a good learner was. And after they came up with keywords or sentences, we circled three of those. And the top ones was taking notes, showing grit, perseverance, and paying attention. And they know that I, now that I go around my classroom, because now they have a rubric, that's what I'm grading for. That's what I'm looking for. So when I go around and I sign the back of their Cornell notes and it says, here, you're showing grit. Thank you for being on task. Uh, you didn't give up on problem. Uh, I'll give them the points for that. Or I see they didn't take any notes. They get a zero and they know that they need to try again to get those those points for uh, the next day. I definitely like that. Um, going back to you know evaluating what you value, and I did similar with my students. We uh, did a little collaborative activity, and before we started, I asked them, you know, what does good collaboration look like? And we did that little T chart. This is good, and then this would be the opposite of good. And you know, then we immersed in that activity, and so um, I did something similar with that. Like let them. But I do think this is a really good tool to use to um, evaluate those things like that that we value, and and I really like your grit and the you know the perseverance and those things. And I know last time we talked about the practices, so I think uh, we could tie a lot of that into what we're doing here with these rubrics as well or these instruments. And then the other thing I wanted to say, and probably the last thing I had highlighted here, was. Just going back to the actual test, um, allowing some students not to have to take it. So that was kind of a practice that I always did at the end of the semester at my traditional high school was, hey, if you had an A going into the final, you did not have to take the final. So this really made me think, well, if I know a student has it, then why in the world would I make them do that summative assessment? So um, that is something also that I'm going to start implementing. Yeah. Show me what you already know that I already know that you know it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right? <clears throat> Just so I can put it in the grade book and someone else can see that you know it. They don't know that we know that they know that we know that. <laughs> <laughs> because the parents don't know that we know that they know that. Yeah, that's, <clears throat> it seems a, a pretty redundant. What do you do with those students, though, that aren't going to test during the testing period? That's like, I'm just wondering, what, what do you do then? Because when it's a final, it's like, just don't show up if you don't need to take it. So that's the only thing that I'm wondering, like, what do you do with those students that have already, like, shown that they're proficient? I, I don't know. Can have them work on a non-curricular thinking task. Oh, there you go. <laughs> that's a good answer. Non-curricular okay. thinking task. I think in, in, in reading this um, and just thinking about the mindset of, the traditional way of grading and all that. If you were to first look at any of these instruments, you'd be like, 
oh, well, that kid only got it because they're in a group. Are you really going to average that in and give them credit for that? And that's not how this is designed. This is right. just simply collecting more evidence. And if they do get it in a group setting, I really like the idea that if they do get it individually later on, that that is that second consecutive mark that you need in order to say that they got it. It's, it's, just, it's just giving kids more opportunities. They mentioned that you can give group tests and um, there was the frequently asked question of, does that mean you're not giving individual tests? He says, no, I'm just giving you more things that you can do to get more data. And I just really think that respects the idea of the formative process that we want kids to understand rather than averaging it. The averaging versus triangulation debate is in this chapter as well. Yeah, and then the whole idea of how much data do you need? Like He talked about, like, do you really need that much information? Because <clears throat> couldn't you answer that in a couple of que- like couple of questions would tell you whether the kid got it do you need to have four quizzes and two tests <laughs> to check to, to make sure so i thought that was that was pretty interesting there always oh, you look like you have something to say yeah i was trying to think about teachers say well how much data do we need to gather or better put it this way how many opportunities are we giving students to improve their grades and i i know some some feedback on other teachers going to be like, if they can't pass on first try, I don't need to collect data. And I can see some some teachers taking that approach. And it frustrates me to be to think that things, that people will think that way. But it does make sense that we need to collect as much data as possible from a student and not just from a sim- simple assessment, uh, format assessment and say, okay, well, you got 50%, uh, you didn't pass. And that's the way the traditional system works, right? And and this this, data gathering system paradigm is not about how much they get. It's not about how much data or how little data. It's just making sure you have the right amount of data. And and here was the thing, and you know, I thought of this just as you were talking there about um, the teacher that was like, well, they can't pass it in the first try, right? That is a total points-based system. That's, that does not exist in a data gathering paradigm because the data gathering paradigm is completely on the basis that I'm gathering data from the students to figure out whether they know it or not or what level they're in. And he talks about this in terms of retesting in that there are no retests in a gathering data paradigm that students write an additional test that adds, it just adds data or it replaces data. And if we think of it as gathering data from students to then evaluate and put that in a grade, then we're not thinking about, well, the kid can only do half, right? And, and I like that shift. I think it's hard for many people, but I do like that shift. That's when we, we work with our PLC teams and I think we can show some progress towards that. Yeah, that's right. Definitely. So this conversation was bringing up a couple of things. And one is, I know at my, uh, not at my current school, but at my former comprehensive site, we had to give uh, marks, and I think you do, every five or six weeks, isn't it, for progress reports? So I'm just wondering, how does that fit into, you know, giving, and I don't know, do you give a letter grade for your progress reports, or do you give a pass-fail? I don't, I'm not sure what you do here. So you'd have to every so often, right, go ahead and and formalize that into a letter grade. And then if you have parents who are looking into your grading uh, system, you know, they, a lot of parents want to see a grade. 
So I don't know. I don't know how often you take those data points and put them into a formal gradebook because you are required to in some sites. And I know that was a lot of the, the questions in the back as well. Yeah, I, I had that same question about parent, parent communication. Yeah. Um, I, I had thought that the easiest way to do is to create a spreadsheet and enter in the data points in the spreadsheet and have and be able to share that. You might need to do a spreadsheet for each student, which is annoying. But that way, parents can still see how their students are doing. And it's clear based on mathematical objectives or targets, right, or content. So I, I was thinking that that might be one way you could do it. He did mention like spreadsheets work out well and that people do have trouble with their grade books, like grade book technology doesn't really help us all that well. Yeah. Um, the other comment was on, you know, the not the students who don't get it at first, right? Well, of course, they're not going to get it at first. They're just learning. And how many times do you pass out an assessment of some type and the students, the first thing they ask you is what? Is it graded? Is it graded? Can I retake it? Yeah. Right? Can I retake can it? I, I hear that a lot. Can I, can I have a retake if I don't do good? So I do tell them, you know what, You're, you'll have another chance next check. I do a check for understanding every week. So, okay, you'll have a chance next week. If you can show me next week, then I go back and I negate the one they didn't do well on. So that's kind of, you know, my way of kind of getting rid of that. The first try is not good because you know we do i am asked to put something in my grade book so the yeah. learning directors can see how the students are doing and if parents call then they they have an idea so that is something that i've incorporated and that does help um yeah i put i put their exit tickets into infinite campus but i ex exclude it from the calculation and it just goes in as a zero or a one which is like proficient or not proficient so that way, and it's by learning target. So they know like, okay, when I learned this the first time, I didn't get it. Or when I learned this the first time, I did get it. And that way, like they can still see it. It's just not calculating their grade. But it took a really long time for them to like stop asking those questions of like, does this going into the grade book? Mm -hmm. Because I feel like they were conditioned like that. Well, it's a CFA. Can I retake this? Can I, you know, like they know that word CFA, which I feel is like really creepy that a kid knows like what CFA is. I, well, they I don't, don't even know really what it is. Yeah, they don't right? know what the words yeah. are. But yeah. like, so I just completely stopped using that word with my students because I felt like it was being created into like a negative connotation instead of like a learning opportunity. Yeah, it sounds to me like they don't know who that actually is for. Yeah. That they think it's yeah. for the teacher and that it's something really high stakes when all it is is to check to see where you're at so that I can make a change if I need to. Yeah. Like, that's it. But it sounds to me like they're they're taking it at a, a lot more high stakes than they need to take it. I, yeah. I feel like in the beginning of the school year, they took it that way. And then it's like now they know, like, oh, well, uh, they'll turn it. I didn't get it or I didn't have enough time to finish or, you know, like, it's okay. I'm going to get it next time. Like, they'll say things like that. I'm like, okay, like, that's fine. Like, I just want to, like, know, do I need to spend more time on this in class or can we move on? So I think they understand now. We'll have an entire another podcast where we discuss assessments. <laughs> well, we if, I, if I could go to the – on page 275, there's that question about – how can we say that every student was graded the same? And that just really stuck out to me because, of course, the biggest word in this district is equity. And 
I, I just really liked what his response to that. We accepted the idea of differentiated instruction a long time ago because we recognize that all students are different. If this is true, then we must also accept the idea of differentiated assessments. Wow. And I, that's just the biggest takeaway of right. this chapter for me. Well, and then he goes on in the next one and says, look, we all have measurement error. And if we, if we get really small, 1% error on one test, 10 tests makes 10% error, plus or minus 10. That's possibly grade. two grades that might not be accurate. So that that was a, that, that was a, a pretty, um, I think, powerful couple of pages to kind of end this chapter on, right? So we are, we just talk and talk and talk about one chapter. We're going to wrap this up in chapter 15 and talking about really where we're going to go next. Now, just a couple of highlights from this. It really was just a summary of the task and putting it all together. I did like that he broke this up into two different toolkits. Uh, when you're building a thinking classroom, it breaks down to four toolkits in four different places. And then if you're actually have already done a thinking classroom and you're building on top of that, then it breaks down to really just two toolkits. The I think the big things to come out of this were that in some places, order matters. In the toolkits themselves, order matters. But beyond anything when you do this, it has to start with those first three tasks. It has to start all at once by shocking the system with using vertical non-perpendent surfaces, randomized groups, and, um, and tasks. You don't have to do all of these things all at once um, because your students can't handle that and nor could the teacher. So they really have to be delineated out in an order and uh, a little bit at a time. So as you get to the end, he, he says that, let's say you're starting this in the new school year. It's going to take three weeks before you get to the next toolkit. So that got me thinking, wow, you, you're going to need to spend three weeks just thinking about that before you even start check your understanding questions, you're still in three weeks of getting them to be that as the norm. So I thought that was really fascinating. The second thing was his typical lessons. I'm sorry, his typical lesson sequence. I thought this fit very nicely with open up. I think this can be done with open up. And it's, I know some of the teachers are not giving homework. Um, this would work as well for, for that, where you do uh, the thinking task, you consolidate from the bottom, and then the day two, you do more of the task, consolidate, have them have time for meaningful notes, and then give them time to do some check your understanding questions. I led, worked on a EFFL lesson today for Mathematic, and we used this form here. So we did, we gave them the task, we consolidated from the bottom, and then we had them take some notes, the, the end there and the formalized piece and then we had them 10 minutes work on check your understanding questions and then we had them get into pairs and talk about what they got and then we gave them the answers and that worked really great the students those students that weren't engaged in the task were engaged in the check your understanding questions which was weird i don't know why that happened but i think this lesson design sequence i think works is going to work really well with what we have
I, I do have a thought. Uh, I wish I would have read this chapter before I started the book. Uh, <laughs> I feel like this needs to, he needs to say that somewhere, right? Yeah, it, needs, it should have been nice to just read this and then try to figure out how he progressed with the rest of the book. Uh, but he definitely does break a lot, breaks it down based on the toolkits. As I was looking at the, the ideas, uh, I, I had my order. And I was like, hey, I like this. But now I was continuing reading the book. He does have a system for it, but then I was like, maybe I can take some of these ideas and implement it in my own way. And I definitely am going to shock the system because the first day of school, there's not going to be any tables in the classroom. <laughs> so when kids walk in, I want them to know, like, this is not a normal classroom. And that's why I want them to know that we're going to be learning here. Yeah, and the thing he talks about here is that they come in thinking, oh, this is not a normal classroom. But after a few weeks, that becomes the norm, not the change. Right. I know a lot of a lot of um, this group has been implementing some of these as changes in their classes. And it's taken a while. Kids have gotten used to it, but it was a change that they had to deal with. When you start at the beginning of the year, it's the norm. Um, and, and I thought that was I, th- I think it's just going to work out better once you start at the beginning of the year. Yeah, that's what I was thinking when I was reading this. I'm like, oh, I can't wait for August because <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. They're going to walk in and the desks, I'm thinking, are probably going to be pushed somewhere where they can't sit down and they're going to huddle up and we're going to start with a thinking task. And yeah, and I even had today a student say something about wanting to sit in the back. And I said, okay, well, where would that be? And he's like, well, over there. And I said, okay, well, today I'm... I'm going to be doing stuff here. And then he's like, oh, okay, well, then over there. <laughs> and he pointed <laughs> to the opposite end. So they, they're, they like, you know, baffled because they don't know where the back of the classroom is, which is cool. But, um, yeah, I agree. I definitely wish I would have peaked in Chapter 15. <laughs> yeah. But it does make sense. And, and I do appreciate how he's grouped these. And now that, I've you know, you've read them all, you're kind of like, oh, okay, I get that. You know, we need to do these doesn't matter which order, but these we got to do in this order. So it makes sense after yeah. reading the book. I will say in the introduction, he does mention something about chapter 15. <laughs> so he, he says, you know, you can read it in whatever order. So if you wanted to start with 15, you could and then backtrack. <laughs> we didn't do that. No. We that. <laughs> something that popped out on the um, notes, he says on page 293, In normative settings, note-taking is more akin to scribing what is written on the boards. This requires little to no thinking and little to no ownership over what gets written down. (laughs) Man. After reading the the part on note-taking and giving students ownership of, like, this is what, you know, you're the one that's got to remember this, not me. Um, I just feel that so much in my core. That we're just so much pushing and write this down, write this down, write this down, and kids don't care. I feel like reading this chapter, it kind of validated all the things that I'd been doing in my classroom because we were, like, starting to implement things as we were reading it. So, like, the, um, you know, toolkit one and two and, well, really three where he talks about consolidating. I'm like, okay, I'm doing that. Oh, I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it, it felt like a good way to wrap up the book and, like, tie everything up with a bow Mm -hmm. i mean i still think that there's room for growth with the grading stuff it's just the grading stuff seems so daunting i'm like i really like how my classroom is working right now so it's like maybe next year i just focus on 
doing these things first semester because you know the whole the norms part of if you try to start this like mid-semester I have colleagues that have tried that and they're just like kind of fed up a little bit with some of the students because they're trying to switch cards they're trying to like you know (laughs) they're all those things that you kind of break at the beginning so I want to do this at the start of the school year with the randomized groups and the thinking tasks and I just think that I started it at the semester so there was kind of a and I even before the semester ended, I kind of said, okay, guys, like, this is what we're working towards. We're going to be doing this. And I tested out one day to just kind of see where they were at. And, um, I mean, my students are accelerated, so they're pretty, they're, the behavior issues aren't, aren't really there that, that there are in regular classes, but I just felt like I tried to prepare them at the end of the semester for what the second semester would be. And I feel like starting off the school year like this is going to be really good. You know, you said it, you wrapped it up in a nice bow. What are your guys' thoughts about, uh, what are you excited about for next year? What are you thinking about uh, in terms of building thinking classrooms? I think the grading piece is something at the end to look at. I think um, he does say, though, be careful on what you do with the uh, things that are student responsibilities, because if you start to grade them or you start to get in a place where you're trying to hold them accountable for those things, then they start to lose that student responsibility. So, but I, I think the back end of those things can be figured out as the year goes on. It's really that first toolkit that needs to be worked out. So uh, what do you guys think as we go into, as we finish out, we wrap up this book study for building thinking classrooms. What are your, what are you looking forward to? Well, for myself, like I said, I'm, you know, as you read through the toolkits, you kind of do a little check. You're like, okay, yeah, I I think I'm pretty good there. Okay, nope, I need to work here, you know. So this kind of lays it out for you. And I know personally, myself, obviously, the last two toolkits, I think, is where I need to focus. So for me, even though we're ending this, I would love to continue collaborating with this group to see how we can tie these things in and you know, it doesn't have to be once a month, but maybe once a quarter or something, at least if we could meet or if we could have a little chat email group or something to Building continue. thinking classroom PLC. <laughs> I think go. we could get some performance contracts on there, so maybe I think we could so. do that. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure we can. Um, if you're listening out there, admin, <laughs> we'd like some performance contracts. Standard group, right? Yeah, yeah. I want to add, and I want to finish with this, just uh, as I continue to, to build on a thinking classroom, uh, I'm just going to keep working on, on the different criteria, the 14 different criteria that we saw. I circle a few of them uh, from the four different toolkits that I feel that I'm at that level right now, but I know that the other ones I need to hit even harder uh, as I continue next year. A um, big part of it is just chalk the system so students understand that, you know, things are going to be different, but they, they will create that new norm for them. Um, before COVID, uh, I used to change my classroom every uh, every other week. So students came to a classroom where this, they didn't get new seats, but the arrangement in the classroom was different. So that kind of kept them up too, but that was the norm. And when I wouldn't do that for a month, they would ask me, how come you haven't changed the desk this time? Mm-hmm. So they, they're expecting that from us. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Good point. I think moving forward i'm looking forward to just starting the year off with all the all this new knowledge i feel like this 
book study has been one of the most meaningful book studies I've ever done. Um, And I really appreciate all the teachers that have participated because I feel like it helped me to become a better teacher. And I felt like when we had our site visit, that was really validating um, on a lot of levels. So, yeah, I'm just excited to see how far I can get through these things again. You know, it's like, okay, I I started at mid-year. Now I'm going to start from the beginning of the school year and see how how much better I can make it. So just always striving to improve and and keep keep working. Awesome. Can can I add just one thing? on? So last night as I was finishing this up, I told my husband, I said, you know what? I go this book. I said, I wish I would have read it so long ago because it really has made me a better teacher so I do feel the same way like there's so many things in there that has really benefited myself and just changing your your mindset and trying new things and you know seeing what works and tweaking it and and moving forward but all with that objective of you know, doing what's best for students so I highly recommend this and this is a summation of 15 years of research right thousands of students all went into this. So I would have loved to see it 20 years ago, but he didn't even start doing the research then. I feel like even talking to friends and, and family members that are not in education, they're like, wow, that sounds really cool. Like, I wish that I had that experience in school, you know, like talking about just even just the vertical whiteboards and them being like, oh, yeah, I remember we would get like those um uh, study rooms in the library before a big test and cram and like do, do basically do that and I'm just like yeah and so um, it's really nice to hear from people inside education but also people on the outside of education that you know are recognizing that this is this is good stuff yeah yeah just to add on to what everyone's been saying I, I would probably said a lot of those same things myself but for me I think one of the most consequential things here is that it really has answered that question of like, how do we get away from DI? Because we've been told that for years. We've been told that we're the professionals and we can figure it out. And we've tried <laughs> things that have worked, but we didn't have the research to back it up. And that's what I really appreciate probably the most about this book. You know, I think at the beginning of this book study, we all said what chapter we were looking forward to the most and all that kind of thing. And I, I really like that there was this question in here like, oh, I really like this practice. Why can't I put it at the beginning of the framework? And it's like, that's not what the research says. <laughs> right? <laughs> Just exactly. Do it in this order for this reason. Trust us. And I feel like I can trust them. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I think as we... Um, had this experience we said i'm looking forward to this chapter and then the next time oh i'm looking forward to the next one oh i'm looking forward to the next one so uh this has been just an awesome experience to go through this with you guys and i really appreciate all of the time and effort that you've put in to this year and this study and i look forward to continue working with you like diana said um, as we form a little group and maybe start spreading this more across the district and show show everyone that you know we can get students engaged and thinking and learning uh, because if there's no thinking there's no learning so thank you for joining me today that wraps up our podcast and uh, we will talk to you all next time mm-hmm.